My name is Sylvia, and we will now be reading today's passage from Acts 9, 1 through 19. Please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man named Tarsus, named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the reading of God's word. I almost died. All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. My name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here, and today I'll be giving the sermon uh, for us. And if you've been joining us for the last several weeks, we've been going over our vision uh, series and talking about the vision and mission of our church, and we're continuing on in that. In the next five weeks, we're we'll going to be talking about uh, our core values at our church. Well, what is it that we actually value? What is it uh, that we do in order to operate and to strive after our vision to point the Bay Area to the true north in the gospel? Well, um, if you've you know, been working here in the Bay Area in tech, or if you've just kind of been around for a little bit, uh, there are some buzzwords, right? Like mission, vision statement, and core values, right? Within your, I'm sure some of you guys probably work at places where you talk about this very frequently. Uh, but there is a, a slight difference between a mission statement or a vision statement and core values. Uh, vision and mission statements are very easy to recognize uh, because that is what an organization or a company is striving for. So I'm gonna play a little game with you guys. I'm gonna say, you know, guess the vision statement, all right? I see Mike Pegg, he's like chomping at the bit. He, want, he knows, right? Uh, so number one, this one might be the hardest one, but uh, to save people money so they can live better. What company is that? Five, four, three, two, one. Walmart, okay? Makes sense, right? Makes sense. All right, this one's gonna be a little easier. 
to, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Strava. <laughs> Sorry, that was wrong. It was not Strava. Okay. Nike. Okay. Yeah, you guys, I'm sure some of you guys guessed that. Well, we'll do one last one, okay? Uh, organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and usable. Useful. Google, Google, right? Okay. So now it's, it's one of those things where you, you read the mission statements of companies or vision statements and it's, um, you, you can kind of identify, right? E even if you are not completely sure and even once I said Walmart, you're like, oh yeah, Walmart, obviously, right? Uh, but oftentimes when we think about this idea of core values or, or values within an organization, it's a little harder to under or kind of decipher because core values in itself, they're, they're a little bit more general and, uh, and it's not something that you are able to see just from knowing an organization, but you really have to immerse yourself within the culture of that organization to really be able to uh, feel what they actually value, right? So, so Google, they have like 10 or 12 values. I'll just name three, right? But it's great isn't good enough. Uh, there is always more information and fast is better than slow. Like the second one, I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's Google, but like great isn't good enough. How is that, you know, like, does it really show it's Google? Like, you just don't know unless you're actually immersed in that culture. Uh, Apple, theirs is accessibility, education, inclusion and diversity, privacy, supplier responsibility. Like, who would have thought supplier responsibility would be one of their core values, right? Disney is optimism, innovation, decency, quality, community, storytelling. Um, those are the core values uh, of Disney. And one of the things that I realized is kind of looking at the difference between uh, you know, core values and, and vision and mission statements is that it's very, it, it's very easy, or it's easier to identify a company or organization by the mission statement, not as easy to, you know, to identify them by their core values. Um, so vision and vision statements are really the declaration of what a company is striving after, and thus it is a little bit more public. It is, it's something that we can identify, but core values, on the other hand, is a little bit more difficult because it's uh, something where you have to spend time within that organization to really be able to capture. So the Harvard Business Review says this. Uh, this is how they define core values. It says, deeply ingrained principles that guide all of the company's actions and serves as its cultural cornerstone. So if the vision and mission statement of an organization is the goal that the organization is striving to achieve, then the core values are the principles that set the culture, help in decision-making, and the guiding star of how that vision is achieved. So core values are, are something that also is, is already in existence in that organization. It's never aspirational. It's something, well, this is what it is. This is what exists. So just as important as it is for us to understand and, and know the vision of our church and where we're striving after, where we're headed, it's also very important for us to understand what our core values are, uh, what, what exists as our values here at True North. Because oftentimes, we all come from different walks of life, we all come from different religious backgrounds, we all come from different churches, and we all have our baggages and the way that we are used to doing things, and so we're going to all ask the same question of, hey, how come we're doing this? Hey, how come we don't have this ministry? Or hey, how come this ministry is operating in this way? Or hey, how come our church does this? And it all comes back to our core values. What is it that our church values? Now, uh, in, the, in, this, in the summer months and uh, the last like maybe four, five, six months, our staff and our leadership board, we came together to kind of really discuss, well, what are the things that we value here at True North? What are the things that are actually in place? What are the things that actually guide us, uh, our principles, and, and what sets the culture here? And we were able to come up with five uh, core values that we hope that our church together, that we'd really be able to talk about and discuss in the next five weeks. 
as we strive together to point the Bay Area to our true north in the gospel, well, what are the things that we're going to do? What is the culture that is set in place here that will help us drive our ministries or, or the decisions that we make are based on these values? So um, I'm going to put them up here on the, uh, on the screen for us. In the next five weeks, we're going to be going over each of these values. The first one is love through obedience, that we love God through obedience to his calling in each of our lives here in the Bay Area. The next one is embracing others. We embrace one another as we actively seek transformation through the Holy Spirit. And all these, you know, I, I got to stop myself from trying to explain it because we'll go over it each week. But, uh, you know, the, the, the preacher in me is going to want to keep on talking, right? So next one, third one, empowering, uh, empowering all to serve. We encourage people to use their God-given gifts and creativity and to further our vision and purpose. Fourth, building community. We believe true community is built, not found, and we each play an important part in this so that we can be a witness to those around us. And lastly, seeking truth with grace. We seek God's truth with grace rather than revert simply to tradition or dogma for topics that extend outside of our core truths, outside of our statements of faith. So now I think this is very important for us to go over, and I hope that speaking on each of these core values will give us a better understanding of how each of us can embody values, uh, the value of our church as we strive together to point the Bay Area to our true north in the gospel. So today we're going to look at the core value of love through obedience, that we love God through obedience to his calling in each of our lives here in the Bay Area. So we're going to talk about how our obedience is connected to love. We're going to talk about the challenges of obedience. And lastly, we're going to talk about what it means for us to value obedience in our lives. So now, um, when we're talking about obedience and that it's connected to love, it reminded me of, of my college days where uh, I, I heard a sermon that was really transformative of my life. It really affected me in a, in a way. So I grew up in a time when sermons were shared through compact discs. If you guys don't know what, the CDs, okay? So we would burn CDs. They would copy CDs and, and hand out sermons to one another. And uh, so when I was in college, there was a, uh, a pastor by the name of John Piper. Well, he's still alive. There's John Piper's sermon. It was called, the title was called Christian Hedonism. And it was something that I was like, it was mind-blowing for me, right? And if you've ever heard a John Piper sermon or if you've ever read a John Piper book, the thesis is all the same. Right? It's, it's just enjoy God and love him forever. It's really this idea of, of this, that as, as Christians, that we need to be filled with joy in the presence of God, that doing things for God should make us absolutely joyful. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And one of the uh, examples that he gave was this. He said, hey, if, if, if you and your wife are, I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, if you and your wife are, para, are, are ce uh, celebrating an anniversary and you wake up, you buy flowers, you knock on the door and you say, wife, it is my absolute duty to present you with this flowers on our anniversary. He's like, who would like that, right? And I was like, oh, you're, you're right, Pastor Piper, right? He said, but if you wake up in the morning and you buy flowers, you knock on the door, your wife opens the door and you're like, wife, it fills me with great joy that I can present you with these flowers on our anniversary. And he was making the case, he's like, hey, and this is the type of emotion and the type of feeling that we should have when we serve God and we, and we love God, that it should fill us with absolute joy to be in his presence, to obey him. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. And, and, I, and, I, and I thought that for many years. And then I was like, wait a second. What if I wake up and I don't buy my wife flowers? And I go, hey, my heart wasn't in it, you know? I was, I was gonna go with the flow and just buy you flowers on our anniversary, but hey, like, isn't it better that I didn't because my heart wasn't in it? My wife would be even more pissed, right? She'd be absolutely way more pissed. 
And, and it kind of reminded me of the passage in Revelation chapter 3 that, you know, I, I think if you grew up in the church, you might have heard this passage before. Um, but it's, it's the church in Laodicea, and Jesus warns the church in Laodicea, and he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm or neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I remember in youth group growing up thinking, man, if I'm not on fire for God, then I better just be cold, right? And because if I'm lukewarm, he's going to spit me out. And that's a completely incorrect interpretation of that passage. I don't want to get too far into it, but hot and cold meant that you are useful. He's like, if you're not... If you're not hot, at least be cold. They're both good, okay? He was not talking about, you know, being on fire for God and not being on fire for God. Anyways, I grew up thinking that, and I was like, in, in the youth group, I was like, hey, since my heart's not in it anymore, I'm just going to stop going to church. And, and, and you know, I had, a, I had breakfast with two, uh, two brothers of, of, at our church, and, and we were talking about something, and, and one of the brothers was like, you know, like, if my heart's not in it, uh, I don't want to serve, like, unless I'm, like, 100% in, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's good, that's good. And then the other guy was like, hey, uh, I don't think that's right. And I was like, oh, shoot. You know? And, he, and, 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 I, and I, I was thinking about this, and I was like, wait a second, you're right. Only in the church is that an, like a legitimate excuse. When we talk to people in the church setting, we're like, hey, like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you, like, you know, my, my heart's not in it. Like, I don't want, if I'm not 100% in it, then why, why should I? You know, you're like, oh, okay. That's like an indefensible excuse, right? But that doesn't work in any other context in our lives. Imagine if your boss came to you and be like, hey, I got this project for you, you got to do it. He's like, hey, yo, like, I'm not into that. Like, I don't want to be only giving like 70%, so you should give it to somebody else, you know? Even in our relationships, right? Imagine me going to my wife and be like, hey, like, my heart's not 100% in it right now. We should get a divorce. You know, like, makes no sense, right? It, it, it's, it's the only in the church have we made this kind of excuse, a legitimate excuse, but that is a completely incorrect and, and, and wrong way of thinking and teaching, there's plenty of examples where that is not the case at all. And I think, and for many of us, especially if you grew up in an Asian background and we have this idea of being dutiful and this idea of, of being responsible, and not that it's, that's you know, just only for Asians, but if you grew up in that context, we think that if we're only obeying God out of duty, that that's wrong. That we should obey God out of the, the, the fervor and the passion and the joy of our hearts. And when we look at a passage like John chapter 14, 15, it says this, uh, you know, if you love me, keep my commands. So even from that, we think, oh man, like, uh, I'm only supposed to obey God if I love him. If my heart is not filled with absolute joy and love and obeying God, then maybe I shouldn't. But we see that that is an incorrect and wrong way of thinking. For obedience, it can be an expression of our love for God, but also our obedience turns our heart towards him. And here in this passage, we see an example of both. We see an example of Ananias who is obeying God because he loves him, right? And, and here's the thing, like Ananias, imagine just being like, just chilling and you get a vision from God and he's like, hey, Ananias, I want you to go pray for the person that might potentially kill you. You're like, whoa, God, like, at that point, I, I would totally turn into like a, a conservative Christian and be like, oh yeah, God doesn't talk to me in that way. If it's not written in the Bible, then that's not for me, you know? But it, literally, he's like, hey, here's a man named Saul. He's a Pharisee who has been killing believers. 
He just recently went to the chief priest and he has got the authority in writing to be able to bind and put in prison any male or female. And that's important because at that time, females were like third, fourth class citizens. You kind of leave them alone. But no, even male and female will be put in jail if they are followers of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful authority and statement that Saul has gotten. And here, Ananias gets a vision. He's like, hey, Ananias, wake up. I want you to go to Tarsus, or to Damascus. You're going to go to a road called Straight. You're going to meet Saul from, from Tarsus. You know, the guy that's been killing your friends? Go and pray for him. Now, Ananias was rightfully kind of questioning, yo, wait, God, you mean the guy that's been killing everybody? He's like, yeah, him. And, you know, like, if he didn't love God, he could have been like, nah, forget it. I love myself more than you. I'm, I'm chilling. I'm just going to chill here. But no, his love for God was evident in that he obeyed this calling, which is extraordinary. Right? So that, that, that happens. We, we obey God when we love him. But the opposite is also true. That even when we are dry and, and stressed and, and far from God, when God has his commands and his calling for us, that our duty to obey can transform our hearts and guide us to back towards him. And we see that example in Saul. We can say in, Saul or in, in Acts chapter 9, Saul does not love Jesus. He is a hater of Jesus. He is an enemy of the church. He is literally killing followers of Jesus Christ. He is there, he's traveling so that he can put more people in jail. He has an encounter with Jesus. He hears the voice of Jesus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He, you know, he, he becomes blind. At that point, you're not going to say that Saul is absolutely on fire in love with Jesus Christ. He's had an encounter, but he's still like, nothing has changed so far except he's blind. And then Jesus gives him a command. Go into, the, into Damascus. Now, I don't know about you, if I had an encounter with like a strange voice from the wilderness and then I became blind and they tell me go to, go to this city, I'd be like, no, 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 I'm going to go to Pam first. I, I, I got to go see an oncologist, not oncologist, ophthalmologist, octiologist, optometrist, right? I'm going to go see an optometrist. What do I, an octopus? Anyways, in, like an op optometrist, right? The, the last thing I would do is want to obey the simple command to go into Damascus. And yet Saul does. And once he takes that first step into obeying God, we see a man slowly being transformed from a persecutor and enemy of the church to one of the greatest missionaries that we've ever seen in this world. For many of us, oftentimes it's... it's it's interesting because we think the command to love is tied to our emotions. But love, emotions cannot be commanded. Right? Have you ever been like down and someone goes, cheer up? Like, oh, okay, I, I cheered up. And, like, it doesn't happen, right? The command to love the Lord your God, that, I mean, that's the greatest command ever. It, love is a choice. Love is, is, is something that we take a step, an action to do. So if you love me, you obey my commands, is something that as Christians that we choose to do every single day, whether we feel like it or not. If we disobey God because we didn't, like, hey, my heart's not in it, God, God's not gonna be like, hey, yo, good job, you know? 
good job for being authentic to yourself. No. We obey God because we love him, and we obey God so that we can love him. I think this is a very important distinction, an important thing for us to understand. Now, obeying God is not easy. Right, I'll be very frank with you. Obeying God is very challenging, and it becomes very difficult for us to do so, especially living here in this world. And that brings us to our second point. What are the main challenges for our obedience? First, I think there are external opposition, right? And we shouldn't be surprised that the world would be in opposition to us living lives of obedience. Now, if you look at how everything is set up in this world, it really is uh, you know, veered towards being disobedient to God. And oftentimes, it's not like the malicious, most evil thing we're talking, you know, it's not like, oh, if you know, kill people and, and sell drugs and do evil things. No, it's just like, like slight things that, that you know, take us away from the, being aligned with God's will. But it's also very practical for us to live lives of disobedience. It makes sense sometimes, right? I, I mean, even th the thing that I'm wrestling with now, right? And especially when I was younger with younger kids or no kids, it was so easy to judge parents because of, of how much time they spend on their kids and miss church and do all these things for their kids, but they don't really do anything for church and be like, I'm never gonna be like them, right? But, it's, but man, it's hard because our whole culture is centered around what can we do for our children so that they have successful lives? And part of that is that Sundays is a very important day for sports, extracurriculars, you know, for, for tutoring, what, you know, piano, what, whatever it is. It's all set up in that way. And for us, you know, as parents, you guys probably kind of feel this kind of this tug. If we're not doing these things for our kids, we feel like bad parents. And by feeling like bad parents, we, we, we start feeling like, oh, are we being good Christians? Isn't our call to be good parents? And there's this weird pull and tug. Even in the workplace, you might see your coworkers climbing the ladder and doing things that are slightly a little shady, right? Or you see people maybe doing, you know, kind of bending the rules and you don't really see them get in trouble for it. You might actually see them getting rewarded for it. And you might wonder, wait, can't I just do that too? And you really have to kind of make this choice of, am I gonna live a life of obedience to God even as, it, it, with the possibility that I might not be getting the rewards and the blessings and the things that other people around me are getting? And these are the external pressures and the external uh, oppositions that we feel to living a life of obedience on a daily basis. For the people in Acts, it was very clear. Um, you obey God, people are gonna to try to kill you. Not, not, it's a little bit more subtle for us, but I think oftentimes a little bit more dangerous because the lines are blurred now. It almost feels like just living in opposition to God is not that big a deal. Or it almost feels like we are living aligned with God, even though in reality we might not be completely obeying him. Ananias is an example. He, he knew, what, the, he knew what, you know, what it was to obey God or not obey God. He can obey God with the possibility that Saul would put him in prison. He can obey God with the possibility that if he goes and actually does what God is calling him, that he might be martyred. The line was very clear for him. Not so much for us. And it's, and it's, and it's our duty to think about, well, what is it that God is really calling us to? What are the lines in our culture? What are the lines for us? And I believe Coming together as a church and a community is, is a great opportunity for us to discuss those things. Because number one, I don't know all the answers and I can't give you all the answers here on the pulpit. 
but through community and through connections and through Christians coming together to talk about the difficulties of being a parent, the difficulties of being married, the difficulties and stress of working here in tech or the difficulties of being a student and striving after you know, all the degrees that we've always been taught to strive after. I mean, these are the ways in which we can converse and discuss and figure out, well, what does it mean for us to be pointed to the true north in Jesus Christ, in the truth of in Scripture? There's also internal expectations that make, us, make it difficult for us to obey God, right? Uh, it, we expect, I think internally, we expect that our obedience will be rewarded with blessings, that our obedience will be rewarded with a good life. Now, some of you might be familiar with the health, wealth, gospel churches that say, hey, as long as you give money, we'll, you know, God will return tenfold, right? And you guys might, or, or some of you might not be familiar with that at all. But whether you are familiar with that or grew up in that genre or not, in American Christianity, we're all kind of health, wealth, gospel churches because we all believe that as long as we are obedient, as long as we are good Christians, that we deserve the American dream. That what is, what is guaranteed for us is a good life. That we'll have a, a husband or a wife with 2.5 children and two Honda Accords. Well, it's different now. It's like, you know, two, you know, one, one Tesla Model 3 and a minivan, you know? If you can get those things, then you're living the dream, right? A little different here in the Bay Area. You probably can't own a home, but maybe. You know, I mean, but we, we expect those things, right? And we think that as long as we live lives of obedience, that things should be good. But when we look at Apostle Paul's life, we see the complete opposite. I mean, even the fact, this is, this is what Jesus says to Ananias. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Dang it, if, if I heard Jesus say that to me about somebody, I'd be like, oh, like, hey, my bad. I'm here to pray for you, but your life's gonna suck. And, and here's Apostle Paul. Okay, this is how he describes his life before Jesus, before his conversion. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 8, it says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day are the people of Israel, are the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he, basically, Apostle Paul, he lists his pedigree. He lists everything that he had before Jesus. Right? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecute. Basically, he's like, hey, I had the perfect Jewish life. I had the Jewish life that everyone was jealous of. Not only was I a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was a Roman citizen. I went to the best Hebrew university that any, any parent would be proud of. I, I studied under uh, you know, the greatest rabbi of the, our generation. I mean, if you put it in our context, it's like, hey, I went to Stanford. 
I graduated top of my class. I was recruited by Google, by Facebook, by Apple, and and you know Strava, you know, and like and and, and all the all the best companies. And he could, and he's saying, but all that is rubbish. All that is rubbish. So I count that all loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ as my Savior. He's saying, my obedience to Jesus made me realize all that was nothing. And yet here we are, and this is, I'm speaking to myself as well. Here we are in our culture, in this Christian church, and we think because we follow Jesus that we are obligated to have the American dream. And so when that doesn't happen, when we follow Jesus and we see that our lives are still messy, that our dreams aren't coming true, that things aren't going according to our plans, that we still deal with sickness and suffering and relational strife, and we wonder, then what is the point of following Jesus? Well, the point is, is that wasn't his point in the first place. We've gotten it wrong. Second Corinthians, now here's Apostle Paul talking about his sufferings. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21 through 28 says this, but, whenever, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." This does not sound like what we've heard in our churches. That obedience to Jesus Christ will give us the life that we've been hoping for. Here's a man who lived his life in obedience to Jesus after his encounter in the Damascus Road, and he's been lashed five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned once, he was shipwrecked, he was in danger everywhere he went. And here's the thing, guys. The moment we start living lives of obedience, we may not get beaten by rods. You may not get stoned okay, or you know, rocks thrown at you. You may not be lashed with a whip. You may not be in danger. You may not be shipwrecked. But what you will encounter are the difficulties of doing ministry, the difficulties of, of obeying Jesus. Like, okay, from this list, Usually when you list all the bad things that happen to you, what do you do? You save the worst for last, right? If, if this was me, I'd be like, I got beaten by rod. I'd be like, you know, list, list, and then I got beaten by rods. Look what Apostle Paul does. He says, I've been, I've been stoned, I've been beaten by rods. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The biggest difficulty that Apostle Paul suffered was the relational difficulties of doing ministry, of the anxiety that he had of overseeing the churches that he planted. Our obedience to love God 
to obey his commands means that we're also going to love one another. Because what is the second greatest commandment? To love one another. And the product of that sometimes can be the relational strife and the difficulty of doing ministry to broken people. When broken people are ministering to broken people, it will be difficult. And instead of running away from that and thinking, why do I keep doing this to myself? We must continue to be dutiful in following what God has commanded us to do. Last um, thing that kind of makes, us, makes it difficult for us to be obedient to God is that uh, we lack patience. We believe that once we obey God, that things should happen right away. Now, whenever I read uh, you know, the book of Acts, I forget uh, just the amount of time that is in between some verses. Right? So, so here's Apostle Paul. He has his, he has his uh, you know, encounter with Jesus at the road to Damascus. And then in verse, uh, you know, at the end of verse 19 and 20, it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And then immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And then if you go over to verse uh, 23, it says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, right? So now I always thought reading these passages and Acts, it would be like, okay, Paul, had, you know, he had his encounter with Jesus at the road to Damascus. He goes to Damascus, scales fall off his eyes, he starts preaching the gospel, and then people are in opposition to him, so they plot to kill him. So he gets lowered from a basket, and then he escapes, and now he's in Jerusalem. Now he's talking to Apostle Peter and the other apostles. They commission him off to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and now he's off into the, you know, into the sea, and he is planting churches all over in Central Asia and Africa and, 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 and Europe. And you're like, man, see how easy it is? Once you obey God, his calling for your life will be crystal clear. Now, when you read Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, it says this, but when he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. What that means is that our timeline is a little off. He had, the road, he had his encounter with Jesus. He went to Damascus. He kind of you know, preached in the synagogue there, and he decided, wait, I'm not ready for this yet. I'm going to go to Arabia for three years and just learn more about the word of God and who Jesus is. And then I went, I'm going to go back to Damascus. And then there, the people there plotted to kill me, so I had to escape from a basket. Then that's when I went to Jerusalem. It took you know, a little more than three years for Apostle Paul to clearly understand the calling in his life. It took three years of him, of him being obedient in the little things and the big things. You know, the little things of just preaching in the synagogues, the big things of, you know what, I need to go to Arabia. Who wakes up one day and goes, I need to go to Arabia and just like live a life as a hermit and learn more about Jesus? Not many of us do. And yet here we are in this generation where everything is at the tip of our fingertips. Right? We get pissed when our door dash doesn't come in time. We get angry when, when our website doesn't refresh quickly enough, right? We get angry when, when we have to wait for our Uber. I mean, we, we're so impatient, and, and so in that same way, we think, hey, as long as I stay obedient to God, he better answer my prayers. He better show me my calling. He better work in my life right now, and that's not always the case. It requires patience. It requires for us, in our obedience, to know that God has a timing in it, that we must trust him in all things. 
So when we understand the challenges to our obedience and that we understand that our obedience doesn't always lead to blessings the way that we imagine it, uh, then we start really to value obedience in our lives. Because our obedience to God's calling in our lives is what puts us at the center of his will. Puts us at the center of his will. Here is Apostle Paul living completely in opposition to God's will. He was placing Christians under arrest and killing them. The very moment that Apostle Paul begins living a life of obedience, his life from the outside looks like it's a mess. But from God's eyes, he was now living completely aligned to where God wanted him to be. And that's true for all of us. I believe when we value truly living lives of obedience to God, there might be areas in our lives that will look messy. There will be areas in our lives that may not make sense. There will be things that are happening in our lives that we wonder, why God, why is this happening? And yet, we will be at the very center of his will. Because it's very clear. There's some commands that are very clear, right? Oftentimes, we seek the will that God has for our lives in very specific ways, like who do you want us to date? Who do you want us to marry? What job should I take? And we ignore all the things that are very plain and clear, like love the Lord your God with all your heart. Make disciples of all nations. Don't be lovers of money. Do not lie. You know what I mean? Those are the things that we focus on that will place us at the very center of where God wants us to be. Now, just even in my journey, um, one of the things that I think, uh, just want to share and end with this, when, I, when my family first felt called to the Bay Area, it was a calling that didn't make sense. Uh, I was living in, in Southern California. I had a two-year-old daughter and a, and a five-month-old son. My parents lived 10 minutes away from me to the north. My in-laws lived 10 minutes away from me to the south. We had babysitters that were free. We had a support system that was amazing. Daycare, one-third the cost of daycare here in the Bay Area. Housing, half the cost of, of the cost here in the Bay Area. Food, 10 times more delicious, <laughs> right? Freeways where people drove 85 and knew how to drive with five lanes minimum, you know? It was, it was just, Southern California is, is the land of milk and honey, okay? it's, it's It's great. And yet, feeling this call to come to the Bay Area, I asked God why, right? He didn't answer. And I said, hey, if I go then, may I be successful? For a year and a half, we had like 20 people at our church, right? And I was like, how much longer, God, before I go back to Southern California? And then when the church started growing, I'm like, awesome, now I can just relax. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me now show you the suffering that I've called you into, of the anxiety and the stress of what it means to lead others. I'm like, geez. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you ask God for exactly what you want, and he gives it to you, and you go, why did I ask for that? Right? And, 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 you know, and a couple years back, my son Isaac started having some health issues Right? And, and it's just, and then from there on, like my dad started having, started having health issues, and then people at our church, their parents started having health issues. There were loss of, of family members. There were difficulties that even our, you know, our parents are going through with their, with their older children, and all this stress and anxiety, and you're wondering, what did I get myself into? And you wonder, is it worth it? 
I could have been in Southern California and I could have stayed an assistant pastor and I could have just coasted for the rest of my life. In that same way, you guys might have that same feeling as well. But the moment you accept God's calling for you in your life and take that step to live a life of obedience, one thing that you can be guaranteed of is that you are living at the very center of where he wants you to be. And Jesus is the greatest example of that. He did not have to come down into earth and suffer at the hands of his own very creation and, and, and be crucified on the cross, but he says, not as I will, but as you will. And through that, we have salvation and eternal life because of what Christ has done for us. And that is the expression of our love to God, that even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, that we would live lives of obedience. Let's pray.